Investors Chronicle. Welcome to another episode of the Investors Chronicle Interviews podcast. Today, I'm joined by Hugh Young, Chair of Aberdeen's Asia Business and a man with over 35 years experience in Asian equity investing. Prior to his current role, Hugh was Head of Asia Pacific for Aberdeen Standard Investments. His career in the industry began in 1980 and uh, his current duties also include management of the Aberdeen Asia Focus Investment Trust. As that biography implies, today we're going to be talking things Asia-Pacific, from economic concerns to company and sector-specific topics, of course, with a healthy dollop of discussion on Chinese equities, Chinese companies doing business in China, and things like that too. We may also stray slightly further afield and touch on some of the other emerging markets as well. Hugh, welcome to the show. Uh, you're joining us from Singapore. How's life over there? Thanks for that, Dan. I'm rather pleasant uh, in the afternoon here. So at least I can still wear T-shirts and shorts. Yeah, a luxury no longer available to us over here, but uh, <laughs> such is uh, such is life. It, it is quite quite refreshing, you know, as a, a UK-based journalist to be talking about something other than the UK uh, today. So uh, let's get straight into it. But in keeping perhaps with the topics of interest over here, the topics of interest for emerging markets, Asia-Pacific, at the moment they're also quite macro-focused, it seems to me. Whether you're a stock picker or a top-down investor, there's perhaps no avoiding the question at the moment, you know, of uh, the US dollar and, and the impact that's having on uh, all other economies, really. Or from your perspective, you think of the the dollar, you know, how do you see uh, its strength affecting the business case for emerging market Asia-Pacific equities in general? Is this something, as an Asia-Pacific investor, you just have to uh, to wear and to, you know, navigate around and... and things like that? Or is it something you think is not actually so big an issue when you're looking at individual companies and stocks? I certainly don't think it's the biggest issue at the moment. The the really big issues are, of course, are we in recession or not? And, mm. and, or certainly going that way, rising interest rates, um, rising inflation, uh, commodity prices, and those, those are every bit as big as the US dollar. And frankly, it depends on the companies we're investing in. So when we look at equities, you know, some benefit from from the strong dollar or, or rather are not hurt too badly by it. It depends where their sales are, where their business is, etc. Uh, but generally, it's, it, it's, it's yet another uh, headwind, I'm afraid, uh, <laughs> at a time when, when on the macro front, uh, that's all we seem to be seeing. Uh, there are very few tailwinds whatsoever. There's just a, a very, very strong headwind. Well, let me try and maybe sort of join some of the dots between that point and the points you, you very rightly raise. You know, uh, one EU diplomat said this week, Fed hiking, which of course is causing a stronger dollar and in, in, in is, you know, causing uh, interest rates to rise around the world. The diplomat said the Fed hiking cycle is risking a global recession. Uh, is that you know your your point of view? You know how do you how do you factor in the, these cycles when mm. when you're looking again mm. on a company stock specific basis? Yeah, again, I think the diplomat's quite correct, and I, I think it's clear to most people that, that that at the very least we we risk entering a recession if 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 we haven't done so already. So the economic outlook is is pretty cloudy. Um, things in Asia are slowing quite dramatically or have slowed dramatically, uh, primarily China, of course, as the 
as the big growth engine of the last few decades. Um, so that's slowed, slowed right down. And you're seeing that happen throughout the Asian market. So in some senses, Asia is, I, I would say, no different uh, to what we're seeing in the UK um, in, in the broad themes. But, but, but of course, I, I, I would say it's, it, it's far more resilient than the UK so, so it has some underlying strengths as well. The, the long-term strengths that you, you know, we've seen coming out of Asia again for many, many years. Uh, but my goodness, we, we, yeah, we're, we're in some pretty savage cycles over the period as well. Do you, do you when you sort of think back on your career and you think of the current moment, does this seem a familiar moment? Does it recall other times? And do you draw lessons from those periods? Uh, yes, and one of the biggest lessons of, of, of course is to do our homework uh, on the companies, and often that comes down to the balance sheet. I mean, I always liken it to the the rock on which you build, rather than building on sand, because when something drops away, uh, which we've seen it happen so many times over the thirty years I've been based in Singapore, from often when you least expect it, if you don't have that balance sheet, you're absolutely dead and, and, and taken out. Um, so saying, I would say this current situation is it's not nearly as bleak as the Asian crisis or anything like that that was very specific uh, to Asia. Um, I mean, I think as far as I can work out, as far as my best guess is, uh, we're, we're ultimately seeing the, the, the unwinding of all the, the loose money that we've seen for, for the last... 10, 15, 15 years or so. You mentioned uh, balance sheets there, and let's talk about maybe some company-specific uh, factors briefly. Uh, how much, you know, do you are you concerned by things like, you know, debt on balance sheet, particularly in, a, in a interest rates, you know, a cycle of rising interest rates, things like cash flow, of course, very important at the moment. Is it the kind of the obvious things you look for? Are there slightly more nuanced uh, factors you look for when mm. looking at balance sheets as well? Mm. Well, we start with the obvious. Um, so, yes, how, how much debt, if, if any. And what's interesting uh, at the fund, I look after Asia Focus. Um, on, on a see-through basis, the companies are actually sitting on net cash. Um, so that shows really how much attention we do pay to things like balance sheets, because certainly when economies slow, obviously cash flows slow as well. Um, yeah. and, and then a combination of that with higher interest rates uh, will, will, will destroy any of the weaker companies. So I think it's, it's very important in our analysis and going as deep as possible on, uh, on, on, on debt um, and what companies get up to. Some of the more naughty companies can do some very peculiar things with their balance sheets, um, and we try and avoid those like the plague. How does that lead you to particular sectors in Asia Pacific? I know the uh, Asia Focus Fund is small cap focused, but but in general, the, these principles do you do you find yourself looking more often than not at certain sectors? Um, we probably generally steer clear of certain sectors. So heavily mm. cyclical sectors is, is not our comfort zone. Um, so we prefer more traditional sectors. So some of the local finance stocks, for example, local banks, 
etc. Might not be the most dynamic of, of of growth, but again, can can be a great way to enjoy the the long term development of an economy. Uh, again, making sure that we 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 stick with the most conservative banks uh, with the soundest lending. Uh, policies. Uh, but it will be a whole mix. Um, technology represents a fair chunk of our portfolio. Uh, consumer goods, similarly, a, a big chunk. Manufacturing, a big chunk. So a whole variety, trying to find leaders in, in every sphere. So, so we don't put all our eggs into one basket. Um, I mean, that's a lesson sort of well learned over the years. So we have a spread both, both of geography uh, and and of businesses. Mm. Just on banks, I mean, obviously, a question for investors in banks in in any region of the world right now is, you know, how much will the benefit of rising rates uh, offset the the risk of of you know that recession brings in terms of uh, bad debts, bad loans. You talk about obviously wanting to look at the more conservative lenders. Uh, are there countries, areas where you, you feel that dynamic is particularly difficult in terms of finding banks, financials that that can come out on the, on the upside from that from that equation? Yeah, that's the that's the balance. The um, uh, interest rates rising, of course, helps banks, but um, but at the same time, in a recession, uh, you get a slew of bad debt. Um, it can be very difficult in China. I, I think looking at financial stocks in China is not easy, given what's going on in China. Uh, and the transparency uh, is not there nearly as much as, say, here in Singapore, where you've got a really strong regulator um, you know, that's seen the banks through many, many regional global crises um, and haven't really had any major hiccups whatsoever. So very strong capital ad- adequacy, very strong rules. Um, again, we can find banks similar to the Singaporean banks scattered around the region. Some, some in India are very strong. Um, even the Philippines has, has, has some strong banks. So it's really bank by bank uh, understanding the culture as, as well as the regulations. China, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, an array of issues we can talk about there. So let's let's go into it. Uh, let's start with, you know, real estate. This was a, an issue that, from the perspective of perhaps us in the UK, was, you know, bubbling under for a long time, sort of came to a head with the Evergrande issue, things like that. And, and perhaps has taken a backseat to various other world uh, um, events uh, from the UK investors' perspective in recent months. But how do you, how do you see that uh, you know, unfolding or perhaps popping of the real estate bubble. Is that continuing? Is that a fair characterization? You know, how, how does that, how is that sector developing this year? Mm. And I think it is a fair characterization. So what we've feared for some time has been coming true. So we've been visibly seeing companies going bust. Um, we still see quite a bit of pressure on the property sector. So so even within our dedicated China funds, we, we we have fairly small exposure. Again, concentrating on the best financed property companies, um, but it still is an issue, and, and and that's an underlying concern by my behind my earlier comments on Chinese banks and transparency. Uh, mm. You're not quite sure what's going on, and, and there's been a lot of shadow lending as well. So. So it goes quite deep. I don't think it's going to blow 
up China as a whole, uh, because China's very well organised and it's all centrally governed, so the banks all come under the party, and as do the property companies. Um, so I think they'll see their way through it. But is it, is, is it going to be a tricky area for particularly foreign investors, well, and, and, and local investors? Yes, and you've seen that in um, in the property stock uh, fixed income um, sector where. Where, where, where the debt has been massively derated. Well, what needs to happen for that to become a, uh, a, you know, a less of a problem? Because again, it seems to have been you know going on for years in various forms. Uh, obviously, the government there, um, you know, the Communist Party, it's not really in its interest to to let the whole thing uh, collapse, uh, understandably. But but you know, what what is the the solution? Is there one to you know making the sector more stable again? Well. I'm, Ultimately, it will be the government taking taking the sector over, or or squeeze squeezing the heavily indebted companies, making sure that their their principals walk away with absolutely nothing. Um, and, and and as you're aware, in China, often a lot worse than that. They might well end up uh, in jail, or even worse than that. Uh, I mean, it does happen. Um, mm. So I think there'll be a, a, a big state intervention if we get that far. But it's the good news is that it is starting to happen. So we we, we knew it was beneath the surface probably the best part of 10 years uh, that there's been such a boom. Uh, and, of course, there have been some bad building practices, bad lending practices, um, and, and, and some companies took on a huge amount of debt such as Evergrande. We are, we're recording this on Friday, the 14th of October. By, by the time uh, it comes out next week, the um, uh, Party Congress will uh, have begun. And obviously, that typically is a, a, an event that investors look to, perhaps for perhaps more in hope than expectation of, of you know, some changes and issues being resolved. Do you think that's the kind of thing that, you know, once that's done with, that, that these kind of issues, the nettle can be grasped, so to speak? Not sure that the party congress itself will sort of be that turning point because I think the, the nettle's already starting to be grasped. But I mm. suspect, and China can always surprise, but I suspect the, the congress itself will be largely a formality, um, you know, welcoming Xi Jinping into his third term. I, I think an important consequence of it might well be that, that we'll see the COVID restrictions being eased. Um, might be a, China might turn out to be a bit more relaxed because they've been really sort of panicky about COVID. Um, whether that happens, that'll be the interesting thing to see. And mm. that will be, obviously, that, that will be a bit of a... a a nice tailwind for markets uh, because we've certainly seen the effect of COVID restrictions easing in the rest of Asia has been quite a positive. And if that can happen in China too, um, great. But again, I'm not holding my breath. I was, I was about to ask about the COVID restrictions and whether, whether the zero COVID policies might, might change. It sounds like from your comment at the end there, you're not positioning with this in mind, but maybe, you know, pre-positioning or starting to consider it as something to look at in the next few weeks, if there are signs there of, of an easing, perhaps? Yes, but it will ease. We just don't know when. Mm. Um, but even before that, we've been inclined to put a bit more money into China, um, right. simply simply because the, uh, the stock market has been so badly hit. It was a favourite, oh gosh, 18 months ago, 
but they're now completely tumbled after China introduced various regulations. So that scared people. Then all the COVID stuff, the economy slowing, the property market. Um, you know, it's actually thrown up some pretty decent value. When we spoke about balance sheets earlier, I think they sort of form part of your 10 golden rules, uh, as it were. And another uh, one of those rules, number one, in fact, is you know demanding fair treatment of shareholders. So when you invest in China with that in mind, and, and given uh, the points you mentioned, you know, about the, the regulatory intervention in a number of sectors of late, how do you how do you kind of square those two things? How do you, you balance those? Uh, and I actually think the regulatory intervention in, in many ways has been long overdue uh, uh, because China owed its growth in, in large part just to letting people really go for it without any restrictions. So, so in certain sectors, there simply wasn't any regulation. Um, so the regulation was overdue and is, I mean, I think in that sense, quite quite healthy. And I think we've seen the bulk of the, the, the really dramatic regulation come in. So to have those rules, I think, is sensible. Uh, more broadly on governance in China, yes, it's, uh, it can still be an issue. Um, so companies do owe everything really to the party. I mean, it's enshrined in some of them in the memorandum and articles of association on 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 on, on many companies um, as as being their duty. So there's always that at the back of one's mind. But again, you've seen a a pretty professional class of business people emerge in China who who understand how to do things correctly. So that's been encouraging. It's all been going in the right direction. But is it as as nearly open and developed as? Other parts of the region, uh, no, not yet. Um, but then, my goodness, it has some fantastic companies doing some really interesting things. So you don't think, was, you know, some people viewed those episodes last year as making China uninvestable. I'm sure you don't think that, but but you don't consider them to be sort of a, a backward step in terms of the, the indications they they provide to, to global investors about mm. the safety of doing business in the country. Mm. Or, is it understandable some people see them that way or have they do you think they've got the wrong end of stick? I, I can understand how they feel like that if if you were a, a holder in one of the education companies and you just find its business being wiped away my goodness uh, but then if you stepped back uh, and, and looked at the regulation regulations should there be certain regulations in place yes uh, and and had uh, had China not regulated a, a few of the companies, some of the internet companies um, had got into the lending business uh, with, without having to abide by any, any of the banking rules, for example. Um, so these were clearly areas that needed to be tightened up. Um, but yes, I, I, we are wary of government intervention, to be honest, in any market. Um, and, and the closer you get to governments, and, and, and the Chinese government is very close to many businesses, um, that's where we get more wary, because governments are obviously acting for reasons other than shareholder value. That maybe brings us on to, you know, the tech, the big tech companies in China, uh, you know, which perhaps are the mo- nowadays the most obvious and the most visible Chinese companies to external investors, you know, thinking of Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, again, because they're, you know, national champions now in a way, the government is obviously quite close to them. At the same time, you know, valuations have been hit quite significantly for not just for China specific reasons uh, this year, but do they hold 
interest now, or is that a, uh, a case of them being too difficult, too too close to the hand of government? Mm. I, th- I think they are of interest. Again, particularly as share prices for- have fallen, you know, most, most have halved and more. Um, you know, down seventy percent from the highs, and in, in certain cases, uh, and all the companies do have what we like, so strong balance sheets. Uh, they have far more of a utility type business now, of course, with the regulation, which um, explains why they've fallen. Um, but again, if you look at them as utilities, you're you're, you're looking at companies on you know, ten, twelve times earnings. Not too bad. Um, some exploring overseas ventures. Some some of the portfolio of other interesting little enterprises. So I think certainly for a China portfolio, and as a bit of a nation portfolio, those those, those make every bit of sense. If we sort of take a step back and, and think again, maybe from a UK investor's point of view, or even a UK company point of view, obviously China is a is a huge market. It has been for many years. Do you see the events of the past few years, kind of the the um, the growth cool down, slow down, and, and perhaps something more significant there? Do you see that changing the way Western companies look to the region? Are they increasingly looking to uh, to other Asian economies, whether that be for manufacturing, whether that be for targeting markets, rather than thinking, "Oh, China is the place you know we must go to," or or is that is there still much as it ever was? You know, the market is so big that it's still tough to ignore. I mean, it is very tough to ignore because it is a massive, massive market. Uh, but I think recent geopolitical events, Ukraine, obviously, uh, will, will have caused many companies to think twice about putting everything in any one country, and probably in particular when they think of China. Goodness, if, if something happens with Taiwan or anything, what do we do? And, and given the uh, increased hostility from from the US on on areas ranging from semiconductor chips on, uh, you're 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 seeing a lot more risk come in 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 that sense. So companies looking at other markets uh, as well to set up. I mean, still having massive facilities in China, um, but I think they've got to be very careful, uh, which is a worrying thing. From my gosh. Uh, best part of 40 years, well, yes, 40 years doing the job. It's been a tale of barriers coming down between countries, trade moving across border, and all we're seeing at the macro level is, of course, those barriers coming up and the world being more divided, which is is not a healthy thing. And um, at extremes ends in war. Well, we'll come back to the barriers in a second, but I just want to... To touch on the Taiwan issue, as you rightly say, you know people are cognizant of that risk now in light of you know Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Does that kind of cast a, a shadow over Chinese investment in general from a from a point of view of a fund manager, where you think, well, if that did happen, you know that the onus could be on us and everyone to you know to divest those positions. Is that something it's feasible to consider as an Asia Pacific investor, or do you just have to you know try and try and you know, hope for the best. I think, in a sense, if you're a dedicated Asia investor, you you have to try and hope for the best. I, I mean, in my career, there was there's been um, tensions between India and Pakistan, fears of possible nuclear war, even there. 
Um, so these do crop up from time to time. Clearly, China's one, not even foreign policy aim, because it's domestic policy, is to reunite the country. And they've been very single-minded about that since day one. And is Xi Jinping the type of man to want to see that happen on his watch? Uh, yes, he is. And how will he do it? Or, or will he actually try it? I, I, I don't know. So it's a risk we have to live with. Um, and, and, and of course, if it happens, something like that does happen at an extreme, we'll see world markets collapse. So, so I'm not sure you'll necessarily be any worse off in this part of the world certainly short term. But the other issue is China is so much more, uh, even after everything the past few years, interwoven with, with global markets and global companies that are unwinding those those relationships will be much harder, you know, even though there is the Russia precedent set. So we will have to see, I suppose, or hopefully we won't see. But uh, let's let's go back to, to trade. And you talked about, you know, the barriers going up. Obviously, we appear to be in an era of, if not quite deglobalization, then certainly not quite as globalized as we were, but are there other Asian countries, you know, benefiting from this, you know, Vietnam perhaps is a name that comes up quite a lot. Are there countries which, you know, being able to take more of the pie now that, that some of those relationships are shifting and some uh, companies, countries are reconsidering how they do business? Mm. Vietnam certainly been one that's been bubbling away quite, quite nicely for a while as a alternative manufacturing base. As, as well as being a large domestic economy. Um, India's another case in point that's seeing a bit more investment come into it. And traditionally, India's been a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare and, and, and still is, uh, but not nearly as bad as it used to be. So it's getting better, uh, but not the easiest country in which to do business. And then you're seeing businesses really spread out throughout the region, even bits into the Indonesias of this world and, and, and Malaysias and Philippines. Uh, so countries are benefiting, uh, but of course, would, would they benefit even more from a fully, fully integrated world trade? Uh, yes, I think they would. Let's talk about India for a bit, because it seems to have been, a, from market performance terms, a rare bright spot this year. You know, market doing reasonably well, certainly... Uh, for a UK-based investor, although you could say that, but a few markets for if you're a sterling, sterling-based investor. But when you look at India, what what's the most, what are the interesting companies? Where do they kind of fall there, and what what do you think has um, sparked the the interest this year? Is it something structural that, that's beneficial? Is it a bit more of a kind of cyclical, you know, upswing? How do you see both the market and the individual companies in India? Mm. Well, there's some great companies in India across a. a a variety of sectors. So it has some of the leading IT services companies, companies like Infosys, uh, TCS in the Tata Group, for example, some very strong financial institutions, HDFC, uh, Kotak, uh, some interesting pharmaceuticals, uh, some interesting consumer stocks, and Unilever being a, a clear example, Unilever's Indian operations are listed. Um, so there's some really good companies, some really good uh, business qualities uh, in in India. The, the, the issue, uh, as far as stock markets is concerned, is simply valuation, and it's not a cheap market. Um, and if you're a long-term investor, as we are, 
um, fine, we'll ride through it and see the long-term earnings growth that will justify today's valuations. Uh, but given the way it's held up, it, it's probably not a screaming buy compared to other markets. So saying the economy is doing relatively well, I mean, it's one of the more insulated domestic economies in, in the region, um, even apart from its exposure to global energy prices, which thankfully have come a bit off the boil. And, and of course, they're also buying Russian oil, which gives them a slight discount. Wait, you mentioned uh, energy, and that is obviously a concern for not just as it sometimes feels for, for European countries and European um, populaces, but is that something you're increasingly having to factor in on a company level as well? You know, the, the costs, you know, things like liquid natural gas is becoming more expensive in, in Asia, partly because Europe seems to be buying up a lot of the, the stocks ahead of winter, you know. Is that something you're factoring into company-specific decisions now? Yes, and it's squeezing margins, very mm. simply put, And then, unless you find a, an energy pure play, which uh, I guess as far as countries are concerned in this part of the world, that's Australia, which, which, which does have some first-class energy stocks and, and commodity stocks. Uh, but generally, we're, we're, we're seeing energy and commodities broadly uh, as, as being a, a negative for most of the businesses in which we invest. It, it's leading to squeeze margins. We're also seeing a bit of wage pressure. So it's, it's, it's one, one of many, many things we, we, we look at and are concerned by. Um, so you've got that combination, bit of wage pressure, um, input price pressures, and at the same time, the global economy is a bit weak, so not not a good combination. It, but it sounds very depressing from a macro point of view. But then, when we look at the companies, we're 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 finding companies, as I said, net cash, ten times earnings, three, four, even five percent yields. That's not bad. Not bad. Let's talk about inflation. In some ways, I'm surprised it's taken us this long, but. You know, input price, input costs are rising. You know, there are wage concerns. These are big issues, obviously, in Europe and the US. In emerging markets in general, you know, they've been more persistent. Uh, it's less of a novel uh, event. How, how do you see those costs right now compared with, you know, the past couple of decades? And, and again, are there lessons you draw off on what works and what doesn't in this kind of t period? If indeed this period, from an inflationary point of view, is com comparable to some of those previous periods in emerging markets? Mm -hmm. It probably is a, a bit comparable, and certainly we've been through periods when we've seen very strong wage appreciation. I mean, in the early days, China was a fraction of the price of Thailand, and companies moved lock, stock, and barrel into China. Now, Thailand is cheaper than China. Um, uh, and I think one of the key lessons we learn is to make sure companies are adding value. So, so, so we shy away from, we tend to shy away from commodity companies in, in general because it can be a bit of a gamble just on where you think the commodity price is. But particularly, we shy away from companies reliant on cheap labor um, because people will always find a, an area that's cheaper. So you've really got to look for companies adding value um, and having that that ability to really 
keep their margins as high as possible. You know, we wish they'd all increase their margins, but that's not the reality of, of, of life. But just by keep keeping adding value and being the leaders in their sector means that they can continue to grow their profits uh, still while paying people more and more more and more in wages uh, and paying more for inputs, which which they're having to do at the moment. When when you look at these issues again, do they do they lead you to particular sectors, or is it just a case of, as you may be implying there, you know, the, the leaders in in each sector in some ways, you know, the ones with with pricing power with the the biggest economic moats. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what we're looking at. Yes, certain sectors are, are, are probably have easier pickings, maybe. So some of the purely domestic companies um, can be easier because they're, they're in a more protected market. Uh, if you're a technology company uh, operating on a global scale, um, I mean, you've got to be very feet-footed uh, because, of course, um, there'll be a, another technology company competing with you the other side of the world um, in, a, in a rapidly changing environment. Um, and occasionally... We find companies that just seem to be able to adapt and continue doing an, an excellent job. And, and what comes to mind there is something like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, which has been a global leader for decades now, and, and we've held for decades. Um, and, and it's rare to find companies like that uh, because market leaders can fade away and, and, and become overconfident and a bit lazy. Semiconductors are an interesting topic right now. Uh, you know, obviously, there's been a chip shortage for a long time, uh, you know, during and perhaps even slightly before the pandemic as well. Now, perhaps we're starting to see a situation where, you know, supply is increasing at the same time demand is reducing to the extent we might see a bit of a, a glut right now. For, uh, at the same time as that, you've also got, you know, the US and uh, some of its um, industrial policy, shall we say, in terms of producing more of these things at home or trying to G up that side of things. How do all these things sort of affect the the near medium term outlook for Taiwan semiconductor companies like that? Yes, it's, um, it certainly hit their share prices quite badly, even even though business is still still at the moment quite strong. Um, and, and, and you've seen quite a bit of weakness across the uh, the chip sector. Uh, for precisely those 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 reasons, combination of maybe eventually there being a glut, um, and and of course the China tensions, uh, and with that you've seen share prices come rattling back to where where they haven't been for ages. Um, and yes, of course it's a very cyclical sector, and I've, I've lost track of how many cycles I've seen in it uh, and ultimately you, you ride through them and, and again make sure you don't have all your eggs in one basket but um, but it's hard to beat anything of the quality of Taiwan semi for example. So does that mean in this kind of situation you know where prices have come off so much that that's an area where you look to add add more? Yes. Prices yep. fall down here. Yep, yep. We try and be counter counter cyclical, if you like. Um, you know, having convinced ourselves that the business is is a great long term business, we we use periods of weakness to to top up, and and of course, vice versa. Yeah. Do, do you have sort of when you look at companies in general? Do you you have set uh, metrics or set caps? I'm thinking in terms of 
you know, typical length of holding period is probably not something where you reach a certain time say it's now it's time to sell but you know certainly size of the company uh certainly price targets things like that or, or do you do you tend to you know deal on a more ad hoc basis within individual company valuations uh, yes we don't set price targets um as such when I mean, we review the business and review the price on on what a regular uh, like say daily basis, but regular basis, um, and, and in the case of Taiwan Semi, we've held it for twenty, thirty years, um, along with a few Indian holdings and Singapore holdings, etc. Um, so all we're doing is looking at it as of today and, and seeing what the prospects are. Looking ahead five years, now weighted holding period across portfolios is about seven years. Um, so we're not high turnover investors. We're we're we're, we're what I like to think are genuine long term investors making a commitment to a company because um, we're not clever enough at guessing what areas are going to blow up <laughs> in in any given year. Do, do you find nonetheless that you know years like this year, well, I suppose the last few years, difficult years do do lead to higher turnover levels as you you know try and take advantage of uh, lower prices, or, or or is it just a case of as you say holding on to what you've got? It's largely again holding on to what we've got, trying to take advantage of any market anomalies, and of course um, <laughs> the least easy part of the job is turning around to potential new investors saying, look, there's some great value on offer. Of course, it's at times like this that we find most people are sitting on their hands doing absolutely nothing, which mm. is rather frustrating as, a, as an investor. But I find times like this is precisely when you should be putting money to work. You might assume you lose 10% very rapidly because that's the nature of markets. But really, these, these are the times you should be putting money to work in markets, just dripping it in. Yeah, and, and do you and do you find new new companies at moments like this when valuations come down? How is that kind of idea generation process working? You know, across the portfolios, do you find more? Are you do you get the sense you're finding more opportunities right now in times of you know somewhat uh, tumultuous times? Yes, I think there there are more more opportunities. We we have a team of I have forty colleagues out here in Asia on the equity side. Uh, looking at new companies, and, and, and there's always a, a, a trickle of new companies coming to market, as, as, as well as looking at existing listed companies. Uh, and, of course, with share prices doing what they're doing, they're, they're quite, quite a few have come into the, uh, that, that interesting range where you think, oh, yes, there's, there's some here that we, we, we would be thinking of buying. Then the question, obviously, is, is whether they're better or cheaper than what we already hold. And, and, and that's the real acid test. Um, so, yes, in some cases, we've been taking a bit of money out of some things that have done very well and adding some new holdings that have come come down to that buying level. So We've, we've been quite macro-focused, or I have certainly my, my interest in, uh, during this chat, and maybe we can kind of conclude on when we look ahead in you know, the next few months, next few years perhaps even, do you consider things like, you know, what, what will the catalyst be for, for that kind of interest in uh, emerging markets in Asia to return? I mean, obviously you're invested there the whole time, but when we look at foreign investors in general, would it be a, 
change or a peak in the, the Fed hiking cycle? Would it be you know, signs of stabilization in China? Or is it not so easy to discern necessarily what, what might eventually cause a, a swing in interest? I, I don't think it's easy to discern because you're absolutely right. There's been, been very limited interest from from outside the region, in the region, for for quite a while now. Um, and, of course, when it happens, people will ascribe it to, yes, it was because of interest rates or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's possibly more likely to happen after a period of very strong performance. I've been rather... Uh, Disappointed, maybe is the wrong word, but um, interested at how many people do are are, are actually momentum investors um, rather than fundamental investors. So, so if, if Asia has a nice run um, for whatever reasons, uh, you'll then find people sort of jumping on the bandwagon, uh, as, as we've seen happen many a time over over the years. Um, yeah. and, and nobody's on that bandwagon at the moment. So when it will happen, I have absolutely no idea. Um, and and we're, we're just watching earnings come through. So ultimately, share prices will be driven by earnings. Yeah, as you say, I think it's been... We're approaching the end of the year now, and it's always this kind of time of year, and people start debating whether next year will be one for, for emerging markets <laughs> and for Asia-Pacific. So I uh, hope spring's eternal on that front, I... Uh, I imagine. Um, we reached the end of our time. Hugh, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, speak to us today. Uh, it's been uh, great to chat about all these, these issues. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed it, listeners, as well. Thank you and goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.